The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we are continuing in our study of looking at what transpired about 500 years ago. A reclamation project, as it were, by a young monk and priest, Martin Luther, building upon the truths of the Scriptures that he was reading in his own studies, looking back at the church councils and the church fathers of St. Augustine and others who understood some of these truths of grace and of God's Word, of the power of the Gospel. And what began as an exercise, both a theological and an academic exercise of Luther, to to see what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church, the primary uh, expression of the church in that day, and to come and to say, I see these things need to be revised. They need to be reformed. And so he wrote in Latin, 95 theses, not a common language, only the elite would have been able to have read it. And he took it to uh, the doors of the church, the All Saints Church there in Wittenberg, Germany, And this young Saxon priest nailed them there, and as one writer put it in a biography of him, uh, he probably put it right next to an ad for someone's lost cat or lost dog, because that's what you did. You put up, it was a bulletin board for uh, the day and the age. And so he wanted to encourage and to spur on debate and discussion about these truths that he had come to realize had been lost within uh, the ornamentation, as it were, and even in the corruption of the church. Surprisingly, I imagine to Luther was that these words were taken, copied, and sent all the way to Rome, where the Pope uh, was able to see them and take issue with them. That they were copied into the vernacular of the German language and spread about uh, within Germany, and so the common people started to see them and to recognize them. And over the course of time, uh, they have been um, brought to these five alones, these five solas of the Reformation, the Protestant, the protesting church, its Reformation. Luther didn't come up with these. He didn't coin them in this way. His 95 Theses didn't have five bullet points, all of these. But he was expressing these truths, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority, and in this was a direct confrontation with the church of the day and with the pope, who when the pope sat on his official chair and decreed something, it carried with it weight that would bind the conscience and the conduct of the Christian, of the churchgoer, in the same manner in which the scriptures would bind the conscience and the conduct of the believer, of the churchgoer. So Luther said, Scripture alone. And then he said, sola gratia, by Grace alone are we saved. That it is God's grace, it is God's provision, not anything good within man, uh, for man has no goodness in and of himself, and if God wasn't gracious towards humanity, then none would be saved. And it is through faith alone, sola fide, uh, that we are saved. Uh, Solus Christus, uh, by Christ alone, soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. And so these things were developing and were being taught 
And the best way to understand the alone, as I mentioned last week, is switch out the alone for the word and or plus. So you would say, well, it's Scripture plus something else would be the ultimate authority in the life of the human being. Or Christ and something else. Or grace and or faith plus something more uh, would have to transpire. And that's what Luther was battling against. That's what all the other reformers were battling against. And within the church of the day, these were earth-shaking truths. They, they were profound in that they had never been taught before, uh, as it were, to the common man. They were maybe discussed and debated within the theological hierarchy, within universities, within the seminaries. But for the common man to hear this kind of preaching and teaching was amazing. And what Luther was confronting was a sense in which the church, and, and I want to make this caveat, many of you come from backgrounds of Roman Catholicism, and I am not in any way, nor would the Reformers in any way, to say that there are not genuine, true Christians within the Roman Catholic Church back then or today. And so we aren't saying that uh, there are no believers in the Roman Catholic Church uh, any more than we're saying that everybody who attends the Protestant Church is a believer. There are non-believers in both, and there are believers in both. This is a discussion of, uh, of the depth and, and the heart of the theology uh, that the Scriptures bring. And so the, the Roman Catholic Church of the day uh, viewed itself uh, as a depository of the righteousness and the merit of Christ. Uh, that God had uh, given to the church a deposit of the merit of Christ, and it was now incumbent upon the church to dispense that merit uh, to all who would come and gain it through the sacraments, through the seven sacraments of the church, through indulgences that you could buy a little merit, buy it for yourself, buy it for a loved one who was in purgatory or someone who had died before you, but that that would take that merit through the church and it would be infused with your own goodness, with your own. See, the Roman Catholic Church has never said that there was no grace or no faith. It just simply said it wasn't alone faith or alone grace. And so it would infuse the merit of Christ with your own merit, and that you would get that merit by coming and doing the sacraments repeatedly uh, and building up your own merit infused with that merit of Christ. Luther came and said, no, there's no merit whatsoever within man, and all merit must be the imputed alien foreign righteousness of Christ that isn't in, infused and mixed in with my merit, but it is a different merit altogether, that I have none on my own. And the world shook. And the world has never been the same. Sadly, now all of these 500 years later, just as you would with an earthquake, the epicenter and the aftershocks right after the earthquake are the greatest. Now, 500 years later, the aftershocks of the Reformation barely feel like a bump in the road to us. Grace is no longer amazing. Faith alone isn't something that strikes us at the heart. Christ alone isn't something that motivates us. We no longer live our lives as those early Protestants in Europe uh, who would have lived what was then known as a Protestant work ethic. Some of you remember it in vestiges, vestiges of days gone by. For a younger generation, you're like, a what? 
Well, it goes something like this. Soli Deo Gloria, you do all your work unto the Lord. So it doesn't matter if you're being paid well for it or not paid for it at all. You do your work not to your earthly master, but to your heavenly one who purchased you from the depths of lostness and gave you Christ. Therefore, everything that you do, you do with all of your gusto and all of your zeal. And all of a sudden, Europe and all the peasants who had come to faith worked. Wouldn't it be incredible if we had a work ethic like that in America today? Could it possibly be? That it's not the government's position to do that, but the church to continue to preach these things and for us to come alive and to work. Wouldn't the gross national product be something different? If maybe believers actually believed and lived out what they say we believed and lived out, but the tremors have gotten smaller over time. But for Luther and for the church of his day, it was striking. You see, it's never been a question of man's need for grace. The question really is the extent of that need. How much grace does man need? How much grace do we really need in our lives in order to be saved? And there is, there is a truth behind all of this. There is a depth of the knowledge and the beauty of who God is that teaches us exactly how much grace we need. And we learn about that through his word. And so this morning we're going to be coming and we're going to be looking at a number of different passages from Romans, from Ephesians, from Corinthians, from Paul. And C.S. Lewis in his great work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, picked up on this because you're going to hear language uh, in these passages of scripture that speak of a truth before time, that speak of a transaction that took place within the Godhead itself a plan, and as, as Lewis talked about, a deeper magic. For in the world of Narnia, of animals, and of the kingdom of Narnia, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the White Witch had come, and she had enchanted all of Narnia, and it was winter always and never Christmas. But Aslan, the king-savior figure, comes back into Narnia. And Aslan presents his life uh, as a sacrifice for one who was a traitor, one of the human children who had come back into Narnia. And in it, something transpired. Susan was talking to Aslan after Aslan had been resurrected from his, after his self-sacrifice. She says, what does it all mean? Aslan said, it means... That though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before the time dawned, she would have read that there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim uh, had committed no treachery on his own, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Lewis was looking at this deeper magic of Romans and of Ephesians and of Corinthians. A deeper magic, as it were, a deeper truth, a deeper reality that spurred Luther on and now encourages us. So let's ask for God's blessing as we go to his word. Father, we come and we ask that you would teach us, you would humble us, you would let us see your word in all of its truth, in all of the depth of the mystery of it, 
we would be willing to humble ourselves and sit under its authority even in moments when we're not fully, we don't fully understand it all. But we would believe and we would trust in you who understands all things, the beginning from the end. So teach us now for your servants listen. Amen. Friends, hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him uh, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, now, we have now received reconciliation. Or over in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 20 through 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or Romans 11, verses 5 uh, and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would, be, would no longer be grace. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 4 uh, through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. So this morning, we're going to delve into the gospel message again. And my hope for you is uh, that it would be amazing. It would be astonishing 
It was Luther who was said to have uh, been quoted as saying, I could preach the gospel every single week to my people because they forget it every single week. And it wasn't that the people were thick or dumb. It was that we live in a world and we have a humanity that runs towards self-achievement. It runs towards a sense of, uh, as we say in America, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Pull yourself up by your proverbial bootstraps and work and gain whatever it is that you gain with a good work ethic. Luther would come and say, but that's not biblical per se. You see, what we're going to look at today is the desperate situation that man finds himself in, the need of mankind. And then we're going to look at the rescue or the solution uh, that God gives to us, the plan of salvation, as it were, uh, that God has uh, from before the foundation of time determined on how to save those whom he will save. And then what is the reasonable and proper response of God's people to these things? And so the first thing that we see uh, is the need. And the need is that man is desperately lost. When the reformers spoke uh, of grace alone, sola gratia, uh, they were saying that sinners have no claim upon God, none at all. And that God owes humanity absolutely nothing except justice. And that to say anything else, especially in today's uh, day and age, where numbers and numbers of people within the church undermine and effectively destroy this doctrine by supposing that human beings are basically good and that God owes everyone a chance to be saved. And if that is the case, in the final analysis, we have diminished grace and subtly, to our detriment, moved it into man's merit. You see, man, as it were here, is said to be desperately lost. Uh, I'll put a couple of things to you for your consideration. I mentioned this last week, uh, whatever happened to the gospel of grace by uh, James Montgomery Boyce. There are certain pastors and preachers who are my pastors and preachers. Not that I've ever met Dr. Boyce. He's with the Lord now. Uh, he was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. But I would recommend his readings to you. This book is available out in the resource center for you. And another one is Putting Amazing Back Into Grace by Michael Horton. And both of these men writing on these truths uh, start here. And the reason that they start here is because this is where the Bible starts. That man is utterly lost. If you were to consider uh, Psalm 51 for a moment, David has just been confronted by Nathan, or at some point previous, and David is convicted of his sinful behavior with Bathsheba, of his murder, uh, of his lying, of all of the deception that goes with it. And he writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Uh, David begins... By talking about the sinfulness of sin, he begins to describe what sin is, a word that is lost in our day, a word that actually in many church growth circles, uh, you're not supposed to mention anymore in church because it turns people off. So I'm sorry if I am turning you off, but I don't understand any way to come to the glories uh, of who God is unless we go first, as Jack Miller said, the way up is first the way down. That so we need to understand why we need to be saved. If we only need a little bit of grace, then we only need a little bit of Savior. And we've got a little Savior. We weren't all that bad. We just need God to help us out a little bit. 
But David said he gave three words to describe sin. Transgression. Uh, that's the word pesha uh, in the Hebrew. And it were, refers to crossing a forbidden line. That we are transgressing the line where God has told us to go. It, it is serious and catastrophic rebellion, as it were. And the king, David, would have known that word. For no one was to transgress a king. David said, I've transgressed the true king. Then he said, but forgive me of my iniquity, the Hebrew word hawan, which is a, a sense of perversion. Uh, it is a sense of the depth of his depravity uh, in there. It is the word when he says, I was sinful, I was hawan in birth. Uh, I was born uh, with a disposition, with a character, a moral character uh, that was fallen. It is my born nature of who I am. So save me from my iniquity and save me from my sin, chata, or falling short or missing the mark of God's high perfection. Most of us would cling to one of those words, maybe two, but not all three, but they give a full description of transgression, uh, of iniquity, of sin within our life. And what happens with this condition of mankind are these things. It renders man ultimately helpless. It puts man in an incredibly deplorable state before a holy and just God. Most people want to wrestle with God in his sense of election, his sense of sovereignty, but the real wrestle is this. It's with your humanity. As we study the Bible, the Bible has an incredible anthropology, a study of man, but it is an anthropology that says basically this, there's no good in you. I hate to break the news to you, but cheer up. You're worse than you want to believe that you are. That's where we start. There. And most of us know that. It doesn't say that you're as bad as you could be. You're not Hitler's and you're not Pol Pot's and you're not Jeffrey Dahmer's of the world. You're not the worst. You didn't get up on the 33rd floor of a hotel and indiscriminately murder people and destroy the lives. You can say, I'm not that. Well, no, you're not as bad as, but it doesn't mean that the heart isn't at the same time woefully and desperately lost. And so what it says about humanity, it takes us back to Romans chapter 3, where Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So the sinfulness of the condition of mankind is that no one is righteous. It's speaking of the heart's. Uh, it doesn't merely mean that we are a bit less righteous than we need to be in order to go to heaven. It, it means from God's vantage point uh, that there is no righteousness at all within the human heart. Like I said before, it's not that we're adding a little bit of our righteousness to the righteousness of Christ and somehow in this cosmic concoction, God goes, there's salvation. He is saying that there is no one righteous at a heart level at the very nature level. Then he says, and no one understands. He deals with the intellect. That it refers to a lack of spiritual perception, not just to a lack of human knowledge. There are plenty of people who don't believe anything that the Scriptures say that can articulate what you believe better than you. They know it cognitively better even than people in the church. So it's not saying that it's a cognitive issue per se. It's saying that we fail to fully understand these things. 
that God's wisdom is foolishness to man and man's best wisdom is foolishness to God. Uh, That the psalmist says, when I consider you, I become unraveled. Your wisdom is too high for me. It it is too much. I'm limited in my intellect. And so he's spoken about the heart. He's spoken about the will and he speak or of uh, the intellect and he speaks about the will and no one seeks God. He says, and he adds on, no, not one. Because when you hear that, you go, yeah, but, but, but I did. I came this morning. I'm seeking God. Or we talk about seeker friendly churches and seeker worship services. And biblically, it says no one seeks God on their own initiative. That no one on their own accord wakes up with a desperately lost heart and a clouded mind and a clouded uh, lost perception of all things. goes, I'm going to go find the holy, magnificent, wonderful creator God of all the universe. And I'm going to go to him and I'm going to explain to him my utter lostness. And I'm so thankful that he gave me Jesus Christ. No one will do that. Unless God begins to draw them. And so if you're here this morning... And by hope that there are some here who are investigating the Christian faith. And I hope that you as believers are inviting friends to come and to investigate the human faith. Here is my understanding of that God is beginning a work within you. To investigate and to see and to draw you towards himself. For you see that there uh, is something wrong here. And God has to do something. And God has two choices. He can either give justice to all of humanity, or He could move over here and give non-justice to humanity. There's not a third way. And many of us go, but I want to believe there's a third way. Couldn't God have done things differently? Couldn't God have just saved everyone? Biblically, the answer to that is no. And the reason that it is no is because God didn't. God determined that this is the best way. And what God has determined is because of man's alienation from him, because of man's rebellion from him, because of the condition of man, that he has to give justice. But now, the beauty, as it were, of the deeper magic before the foundation of time, that within the Godhead, within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God came up with a plan. To where justice would still be enacted. But he could be both the just and the justifier. Because he came with a rescue plan. That absolutely blew the socks off of everybody in heaven. Because when all of a sudden it was presented. It says that these things were for the angels. That they were amazed to look upon. Because here is the plan. God the Son. Go live among them. God the Son, Christ, go take on fallen humanity and go live there under the laws that you created within the ordinance of creation that you called forth. Go and live perfectly on their behalf. And then you are going to stand in judgment in front of your Father, the judge, because He has to be just. Justice must be satisfied. He can't just go, it's okay. And he's not creating purgatory to say, work it out a little longer over there. It says it is ordained for man to live once and then to die and then to be judged once. God has to judge. And so now there is this incredible plan from before the foundation of the world. 
but God. Isn't that a great beginning? But God. Being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Remember, you're a mess. You're over here dead. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one could boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if you're astute and you're thinking, you're going, ah, this is the election card. I knew it. I forgot that I'm in a Presbyterian church. Election. The frozen chosen folks. Man. How did I get here? Folks, the doctrine of election is predicated upon two things that you have to wrestle with whether you believe it or not. And that is the holy character of who God is and the messed up nature of of who humanity is. And when you bring those things together, you have to ask the question, how then is anyone saved? Paul says, That God the Father chose us in love. The sola of the Reformation that we're looking at today stresses the initiative of God Himself. That it was God who initiates salvation. You see, God doesn't owe us anything, yet God, rich in mercy, initiated salvation for us. And by the way, this is an incredibly important distinction, not to make salvation available to you, but to assure salvation for you and in you. He didn't just throw it out there and say, choose Jesus or don't choose Jesus. He said this, Christ said, Father, I came for those out of the world whom you gave to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him should not perish. God so loved the world that he came that those who believed, only those who would believe, would be saved and given new life in him. There's a distinction between those who, gain, who get justice and those who receive non-justice, mercy, and grace. And the fact of the matter is God said, okay, this is the plan. I'm going to save some. I don't have to save any. But I'm going to save some. And we wrestle with that emotionally. And it's, it's le- legitimate. When you hear the verse... For Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Anybody wrestle with that verse? Well, I do. I think we're in good company together with that. Because it doesn't resonate well with the human mind and the human heart. We just want to say, well, God should love everybody. But my wisdom bumps up against his. And I'm forced into a place of humility to go, some receive justice. That's what we receive under our head, Adam. And who we are. But some receive non-justice. We receive love and grace. And for God to extend love and grace to some. How does that make him evil? It makes him incredibly merciful. And gracious to save any. When he didn't have to. He owed humanity nothing. What does the clay pot. Have to say to the potter. That resonates well with your ego doesn't it? I'd have something to say. Really? Why? Only the person equal to or greater than God can demand that. 
And so it, re- it, it, it strikes us deeply that the Father chose us in love. And that Christ the Son willingly gave up the glories and the beauties of heaven to come down and to live and dwell among us. Guys, it's hard enough for us to leave the low country, to go to a third world country, to live in poverty for a week and eat food that isn't up to our standards. And we're saying, wow, this is really, I really suffered for Jesus. And you have, we have no idea what Christ gave up in order to come down from the very glories and the excellencies of heaven that Christ willingly left and He willingly entered into the chaos of man's lostness to redeem it with His perfection. He purchased us from the power of sin and death by living and dying in our place. He stood under the justice of God. And the Holy Spirit then awakens the hearts of those whom the Father is calling so that we would have hearts of flesh And that we would respond to his call. So here's a couple of questions for you. And they're sort of trick questions. Are you saved by works or by grace? The answer is actually works. Somebody still had to work on your behalf. Christ still had to perfectly obey the Father. And he did. And then what he does is he gives us his perfect works, his perfect righteousness. So that when we stand before the Father and we receive them by grace. For we actually are saved by grace also. So when we say, Father, don't look at my works, look at Christ given to me. And how is it then that anyone would come to faith? Because aren't we supposed to choose God? Do you think we have to choose God? Well, the answer is yes, of course we do. As for me and my house, today I choose to serve the Lord. Today I'm making a declaration. Today I choose God. Here's what I know. It's the darker magic behind that God changed your heart. From a heart of stone that would never choose Him to a heart of flesh that would choose Him and want to choose Him. And so we're drawn to Him and say, yes, today, I stand and I choose God. But we recognize on the back side of that, this, Luther came up with these two illustrations to explain man's inability and God's gracious election and salvation given to us. He said, man is either like a little toddler who's learning to walk. And you see the little toddler as he's going or she's going across the floor. The parent's going, come on, you can do it. You can do it, and you're encouraging them on, and they're coming along, and you're like, you made it. Good job. Well, that's one view of salvation. But Luther said that's not a biblical view. The biblical view is over here, and it's a caterpillar within a ring of fire. And you say to the caterpillar, get out of the ring of fire. And the caterpillar can't get out of the ring of fire unless God, somebody, reaches down into the ring of fire and places the caterpillar over here. One says that man has a little bit of ability left in himself to come to God with some encouragement in just the right situation. The other says man is utterly and desperately lost and God has to reach in and come and change us and save us. One is biblical, one is not biblical. And Luther is saying, how do you see yourself? And if you rightly see yourself as utterly lost and as God is utterly good to save any and to save me, then how do we respond? I'll give you a couple of things and we'll end. One, next week we're going to be talking about faith. We we believe by faith alone. Interesting, even that gift, it says of faith in Ephesians 2, is a gift of God. So somebody didn't have faith and somebody didn't, somebody else didn't. Because here's the deal, if Jesus just made it available for all the world, then how come you chose him and your neighbor didn't? How do you answer that question? But if we recognize that it's all of God, then here's what the Christian response is like. 
profound humility. We're the most humble of all people. Because we recognize I didn't deserve this. I know my own heart. I know what I have done. I know what I was born into. I know what I continue to do. And I know what I will continue to do. And I am amazed to the point of such humility that God would love me. He didn't look into the future, into November of 1990 and say, Bill McCutcheon is going to choose me, therefore I'll make him one of my own. No, he looked down from the portals of all time and said, in November of 1990, Bill, I am radically changing your life. And I'm making you my own. I didn't do anything, nor did you. And it is so incredibly humbling for the believer. Folks, I want you to know your theology and I want you to know it so well that it leads you to humility. If it leads you someplace else, keep studying and keep your mouth shut. Because the pride and the arrogance of young Reformed people, young Protestants, both young in age and young in, in maturity, is that we somehow brag about our doctrines of grace. When really, we should weep. Move to utter and profound humility. It leads to incredible hopefulness. Because if I know my own heart, and I've been saved, then there is hope for every other person in the world that I come in contact with. Because it's not based on them. It's not based on them. It's based on God who is rich in mercy. And so I beseech the Lord of the harvest. I beseech God. I pray to God and go, God, change their heart. Is there someone in your life who you are convinced is never going to come to faith and all of you have that person? You know that person. Within that statement is such arrogance. I could come to faith, but they can't. The humbled believer is so hopeful to pray and to go, God, you can do this work. I can go into neighborhoods. I can go into poverty. I can go into the world and I can believe with great hope that you can do incredible things. And I will have joyful celebration. I will be incredibly and profoundly humble. I will be very, uh, I will be uh, hopeful and I will celebrate. I will be joyful because I just got saved. I've received something that I didn't deserve. Does that excite you anymore? Boy, it should. It should. Think about the person, and we've got to kind of get moving here. Think about the person who has terminal cancer, and let's say they went to the doctor, and the doctor has the cure for cancer, and they were told, hey, you no longer have cancer. It will never come back. It has been eradicated out of your body. What do you think their response is going to be? That's cool. No, 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 no. You are going to die, and I just healed you. You no longer have cancer. Awesome. I'll see you once a week for about, a, I don't know, 30 minutes. And that's long. 20 would be better. No. You'd go, this is awesome! And then as you left the place, how many people do you think you would tell that you don't have cancer? Maybe one? Or maybe everybody? I don't have cancer! I've been healed. I'm going to live. The believer has even much, so much more to celebrate than that. And then we have a deepening holiness. We have a profound humility. We have a, a deep and incredible hopelessness, or hopefulness. A joyful celebration. And a deepening holiness. The Christian who has been saved 
who recognizes that God is both the just and the justifier, who knows what we were saved from and what Christ did on our behalf, we take sin seriously, folks. We take piety seriously. We take righteousness seriously. Paul was astounded that there would be some who would think, you mean I should sin that grace may abound? Paul's response, may I be anathemaed? May it never be! How could you ever consider grace that way? Grace should drive us and lead us to a love of God's law and a desire to be just like the one who saved us from who we were. Martin Luther said this, God has surely promised His grace to the humbled, that is, to those who mourn over in despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsels, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the counsel, will, and pleasure, and work of another on God alone. This is still amazing. The invitation now is for you to come to this table